0: So I'd like to ask you, if you would, to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter five, and there is a Bible app event for this on the version Bible app. You can find an event there and follow along that way. Matthew five, we're gonna be looking uh, at a passage there. And you know, Matthew five talks about blessed are you, blessed are you, blessed are you. Um, And uh, we're gonna be covering that ground this morning. I wanna begin though by talking to you about something that happened on October 2nd, 2006. Now, when I say that date, you're going to be like, yeah, I don't know what that is. What is that? It's not like 9-11 or something. But if you lived in Lancaster County, and if you were Amish, you would say, yep, that was a bad day. Because that was a day when a milk truck driver named Charlie stopped at a high school full of Amish school children, an elementary school full of Amish school children, one room, schoolhouse, mostly girls. And he did the unthinkable. And within moments, five of those little girls were gone. And then after that, others were severely injured. And then Charlie finally ended his own torment. After laying their loved ones to rest, 30 Amish men, women, and children, parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles, family, showed up at the funeral for Charles. And when they were there, they tenderly expressed their sympathy to his widow and family. They gently embraced her And they told her, we forgive him. Later, it was revealed that the Amish community actually helped Charles' widow with Charles' funeral expenses. You understand, Charles was the perpetrator. And they were the victims. Their children were the victims. Now, naturally, that kind of behavior garnered a lot of attention in the news media, radio personalities, talking heads, um, bloggers, uh, trying to make sense of that. How in the world did the Amish do that? How do the Amish do that? How can you forgive something so amazingly unthinkable? And from time to time, as I watched that, I tuned into that a lot during that time. From time to time, somebody would make this comment. They would say, well, they're Amish and the Amish live by the Sermon on the Mount. And when somebody made that comment, it was almost like end of conversation. Like the other person who was on the screen would say, oh yeah, the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, yeah, well, that makes sense then. Really? That makes sense then? How does that make sense then? Maybe we should become a little more familiar with the Sermon on the Mount. So I want today to begin a series where we're going to be talking about the Sermon on the Mount. I want to remind you, it begins with verse one says, now when when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Now that mountainside, when you see the pictures like from your Sunday school literature, or if you see some works of art done, Jesus is sitting on a rock and they're all gathered around him. It doesn't look like that at all. In fact, the back of your PowerPoint this morning is the Mount of Beatitudes. It's the place where he preached the Sermon on the Mount along the Sea of Galilee. I think of it as the Sermon on the Hillside, right? Uh, pretty much that's what it is. I've been there twice. One time when I was there, Laurel did the devotional. She was with us that time. And the second time I was there, I did the devotional. It is a beautiful location. It's a beautiful place. But the real beauty of the Sermon on the Mount is not its location, but rather its content. Because what it says is incredibly valuable. Christians and non-Christians alike value the Sermon on the Mount. For example, it's recognized by scholars for just the way Jesus crafted it, starting with the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Starting with that, and then transitioning to the you've heard it said, but I tell you. You've heard it said, but I tell you. You've heard it said, but I tell you. And then going all the way to this is how you should live your life in the kingdom. It, whether you're taking a freshman literature class at the University of Pittsburgh, or maybe you're in a Bible college or seminary, there's a possibility, a distinct possibility, that you will study the Sermon on the Mount because it's just valued for the tools that Jesus uses. He uses tools of compare and contrast when he says, you've heard it said you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. Compare and contrast. He uses brilliant aphorisms. An aphorism is a figure of speech that's very short and very meaningful. And so he'll say something like, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And you will be sitting there like, whoa, man, he just said that right. I guess you would say today in today's parlance, he would say um, he he was quite tweetable. Uh, Jesus was in the Sermon on the Mount. Those one-liners that are very meaningful. And the poetry, like the the King James says, consider the lilies of the field. They do not toil, you know, and they do not spin. And it's just so poetic and almost majestic the way he says it. And scholars say there is great mastery in the Sermon on the Mount. Not just scholars, but you see its value in the arts. Um, Its influence is all throughout the art world. 50 years ago, there was a musical called Godspell. And if you were around 50 years ago, you know that Man, it was really popular. Not so much today, but everywhere you went, you turned on a radio, you would hear stuff from Godspell. You went to a high school; they're doing Godspell as a play. You went to a college; there's Godspell; they're doing it there. And through the centuries, um, <laughs> through the centuries, it shows up in the arts all the time. By the way, if you happen to have a script of the music from or of the musical Godspell, it won't say written by so and so; it will say conceived and directed by so and so. And the reason is that the guy who put it together said, I didn't really write this. It's just Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, it's a little more than that, but that's how much influence the Sermon on the Mount has and how valuable it is seen in the arts. Listen, there's a lot of other good sermons out there. Peter, when he preached on on Pentecost, thousands of people were added to their number. That's good preaching right there, right? And then there's Paul, when he speaks on Mars Hill, that stands as a model of oratory as he speaks to the Greeks there in Athens. Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. There's a local English teacher who, at least in the past, used to have his class read that because it's such an artistic expression. Good sermon. Paris Reedhead, my favorite sermon, apart from Sermon on the Mount, is 10 shekels in a shirt. That's a great sermon. But none of those sermons find themselves revered so in the arts as does the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus just, he isn't just at the top of the pile. He is the pile. He owns it with this sermon. It's intensely valuable. And it's valuable because it is a sermon of resistance. If you think of preaching as an art form, then you can say the Sermon on the Mount is is really resistance art. You know what resistance art is, right? Crosby, Stills, and Ash and Young, four dead in Ohio. That was art and it was resistant, resistant art. Or Leonard skinner don't mess with the needle or the spoon or any trip to the moon. That was resistance art. 12 Years a Slave by Northrop, Solomon Northrop, resistance art. Jesus was resisting something, but he wasn't protesting a corrupt government. He wasn't advocating a, a, a new economic reform. He wasn't resisting some human oppression. It's bigger than that for Jesus. Jesus was resisting the way the world views life. He's saying, you view life the wrong way. You see reality backwards. You you have things upside down. Sometimes my wife and I find ourselves working mechanically on something together. Most recently, it was the vacuum cleaner. Something got stuck in there, it got stuck in there in a place where you're gonna need a screwdriver, you're gonna take it apart. I am always game for that. I love taking things apart. Putting them back together, maybe. Maybe. But here we are. We're taking it apart. We get it all fixed, and we're putting it back together. And I'm holding the pieces together. I'm on this side. Okay, I'll stand this way. I'm on this side of the of the vacuum cleaner, holding the pieces together. And she's on this side of it with the screwdriver, and and she's trying to put the screw in. And as she's turning the screw, she has to reach around, kind of, to do it. Right. And 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 you know the rule, right? On tightening and loosening sc- screws, lefty loosey, righty tighty. It's just, it's the rule, right? And I'm watching her turn that, and she's turning it lefty-lucy. She's trying to put it together. She turned, but remember, she's reaching around, right? So to her, it looks right. And I said, honey, you're, it's lefty-lucy, righty-tiny. And she looked at me, she said, I know that. And, and, and I said, well, you're not doing it. She said, yes, I am. No, she wasn't. And it's such an easy mistake. All of us do that. Every mechanic you know still does that sometimes. I see you nodding your head, Bob. We all do that, right? Because, when you're looking at something backward, you're bound to struggle to get it right. Well, Jesus says you're doing that with life. Jesus says that we have life all wrong because we're looking at it the wrong way. And when you take apart this Sermon on the Mount, and dis- you will discover some answers to some questions that have long been unanswered in your soul. You can think of these as soul questions that he addresses, things that just kind of gnaw at you or eat at you, and they're universal. Everybody feels these questions, and yet they're deeply personal. And you may even have these questions and you were afraid to ask. Or maybe you had these questions and you just pushed them down so you don't even think about them anymore. Jesus addresses them in a Sermon on the Mount. For example, he addresses this question. Why can't I find lasting happiness? Why do I struggle so much just to be happy? And Jesus talks about this early in the sermon. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountain and sat down, and his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, and he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he went on and said, blessed are the, blessed are the, blessed are the, blessed are the. And there are some translations that say happy are the. And 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 those translations aren't wrong, but our understanding of happiness is shallow. Because what he's talking about when he said, blessed are you, is he's talking about deep, abiding, lasting happiness that doesn't come when your team wins a game, you understand. It's bigger than that. It's deeper than that. Why can't I find that? Why can't I find lasting happiness? Now you may say, I don't know that I really struggle with that in my life. But for most of us, it's a struggle. And maybe if you look deep enough, it's a struggle for you. Why does life have to be so hard? Why am I always looking for something else? When in the world will I ever find an easier road than this one I'm on? Why does nothing really satisfy me deep down? Why do I have this wonderlust in my mind? Why do I have just this, this desire for something? And I believe that the problem is, that there's something wrong with our value system. There's something wrong with our definition of happiness and what we think would bring happiness. My favorite example of this is a quarterback who by the world's standards should be happier than anyone. He's got it all. He has won several Super Bowls. I have lost count of how many Super Bowls he's won, probably because I'm mad that he won that many. That's probably what it is, right? There is no one better at his craft than he is. He's probably the best that there has ever been. And he's married to a supermodel. And she is all that, you know? Yeah. And he's a millionaire several times over. And by the world's standards, he should be the happiest guy there is. But several years ago, when he was on 60 Minutes, being interviewed by Steve Croft, this is what Tom Brady said. A lot of people would, he says, look at me. A lot of people would look at me and say, hey, man, man. This is what it is. I have reached my goal, my dream, and my life is just... But me, he says, me, I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't... This can't be what it's all cracked up to be. Huh. The cross replies to him, what's the answer? What a great follow-up question, you know? That's why he's on 60 Minutes and I'm not. I wouldn't have thought, what's the answer, you know? Brady replies, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Now listen to me. I don't say that to criticize Brady. I will criticize him for a hundred other things. <laughs> I say that because I am so, I am in such admiration of his candid honesty. He didn't hide. He, he shows us that the world's view of lasting happiness must be askew. It must be messed up. Could it be that our failure to understand what true happiness is is one of the big reasons for the epidemic of addiction that plagues our society? Might it be that the struggle to identify what real joy is is part of the reason for adultery and the disintegration of marriages in our society? I wonder if our misunderstanding of happiness contributes to our depression and anxiety. Why? Why? Why do I struggle to find lasting happiness? That is one of the questions that Jesus is addressing in the Sermon on the Mount. And he is resisting the stock answers. He is not saying that happiness is found in being the popular steady at school. He's not saying that happiness is found in being the king and the queen of the prom, riding around with the car top down and the radio on. He's not saying that those things bring happiness. In fact, it seems to me that Jesus resists that kind of thinking equating that kind of life with genuine happiness, it seems to me he resists it with all he can in the Sermon on the Mount. First question, why can't I find lasting happiness? The second question addressed in the Sermon on the Mount that I'd like to speak to you about is why can't I be the person I should be? Now we've talked about a movement in Christian academics to do away with the penal substitutionary view of atonement. And some of you are like, I don't even know what you just said, Pastor Steve. And it's not because you're not smart, it's because only real nerdy people think about those things, right? But the penal substitutionary view of atonement is easy to understand, in fact, you know it. It is understanding that there was a penalty that needed to be paid, penal. And a substitute came in to pay that penalty, Jesus. And he atoned for our sin by substituting on our behalf, taking the wrath of God for our sins so we don't have to. The penal substitutionary view of atonement. And I say to you, there's a movement in Christian academics to do away with that view of atonement. The thinking is that, well, you know what? A lot of people today, they don't have any sense of guilt. They don't feel like they did anything wrong. So when you come up to them, and you say, hey, you're a sinner and you're, you're doomed <laughs> and Jesus died for your sins. They're like, eh, I don't get that. And it's not gonna garner any, any followers for Jesus. Let me just say this hear this, deep down, they know, and you know what I know, that humankind is deeply damaged, and I am one of them, and they are one of them, and you are one of them. In fact, without Christ, I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. I I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't, I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. Those words of Romans 7 resonate so clearly, it would almost be if I hadn't put it on the screen, you would have thought, yeah, that's pretty good original material, Pastor Steve. No, it's right from the Bible. And if you can't admit that, then you probably are struggling with a little bit of self-righteousness. And that won't get you anywhere good. But if you do admit that, that you're, you're not who you should be, then this question, this question is something you ask, why? Why can't I be the person I should be? That's the question Jesus is answering in this sermon. There's a third question that he's answering. How can I live above the kingdom of the world? If you go to census.gov, you can find out a lot about the community you live in. Uh, Clearfield County, for example, I, I went there because I was wondering what level do we live at, you know, as a county. And so I looked, at internet, that kind of interests me because it's technologically. 71% of households in Clearfield County have internet. Heh, good, I'm in that group. Yeah, I got the internet in my home, right? And there's another uh, statistic. What's the average commute to work for people in Clearfield County? 25 minutes, two blocks for me. I'm winning, I'm winning there, right? That's good, good stuff right there. What's the median household income in Clearfield County? $47,270. Now, as soon as you hear that, then you're beginning to maybe compare. How am I doing there? Am I winning? How am I doing on that financial thing? Am I at that level? Hey, if it's, if it's $47,270, I want to be at that level. Actually, I want to be above that level. How can I get above? That level is really important. I'm going to focus on that level, that level, that level, that level, that level. Let me suggest to you, there's a whole different level that you should be focusing on instead of that one. And that level is, have you risen above the level of the kingdom of this world, spiritually speaking? Are you above the level that you would be at had you never encountered Christ? What is your spiritual level? And you can't measure that with dollars. You can't measure that with households. You can only measure that by looking at these kinds of questions. How can I live above this world, spiritually speaking? And How can I live like I'm a citizen of the kingdom of heaven instead of a citizen of this place, which, frankly, i kind of like them to stop this world and just let me step off, right? How can, I, how can I live above the kingdom of this world? That's a question that Jesus seems to spend a lot of time answering in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, let me say this to you. If you're going to find any value in this sermon series, then you would do well to, in this week that's coming up, prepare your heart for Jesus' teaching that, Lord willing, you will encounter next week. The Sermon on the Mount, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tends to assume that some of his listeners are part of the kingdom. For example, uh, he says in verse 14 of chapter 5, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. And so he's speaking to people who are light. They're not darkness. They must be kingdom people. He has that in mind. But Jesus doesn't acknowledge that all of them are, because at another place, in chapter 7, verse 13, he tells you how to get into the kingdom. He says, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and Many enter through that. So I guess maybe the first thing to ask yourself if you're going to prepare your heart for this sermon series is, have I entered the kingdom? And if I haven't, let's do it. Enter the kingdom. Reflect on those questions for a minute. Why can't I find lasting happiness? Why can't I be the person I should be? How can I live above the world? And, And the answer to that last one, how can I live above the world? It's with Jesus. Unless you enter the kingdom, then you never have any hope of finding satisfaction in those questions and living above the world. You cannot find lasting happiness because something is broken inside you and Jesus came to repair that. And you cannot be who you should be because you are chained to a sinful world and Jesus came to break those chains. And you cannot live above this world because you're still part of this world, but Jesus came. Jesus came to transform you and to elevate you. The answer to all those questions is Jesus, when he died on the cross, he purchased forgiveness for you and made way for your transformation. And when you turn away from your sin and follow him, trusting his death to save you, you begin a new life and you enter into the new kingdom. Uh, the, The analogies in scripture, scripture is rife with analogies regarding this particular topic. Jesus himself says it's like getting born all over again. And so you're born again. The Apostle Paul says to the church at Corinth, it's like you're a new creation. The King James says, a new creature, you know? You're like brand new. You're not the person you used to be. You have been crucified with Christ when you enter the kingdom, the Apostle Paul says to the church in Galatia, so that you don't live anymore, but Christ lives in you. You're made into a new person. And the way you enter the kingdom is you just turn to God and say, I can't do it. I don't have answers to the questions. I guess that you do. I understand that you love me. I understand Jesus came and died for me. I'd like to be forgiven. Would you please forgive me, Jesus? I will follow you. And he says, where have you been all this time? <laughs> I've been waiting to hear that forever. He's the father in the prodigal son story, and he runs to you and he sees you coming. And he kills the fatted calf, and he puts you in the robe, and he gives you the ring. Welcome to the family. Welcome to the kingdom of heaven. So if you're going to prepare for this sermon series, then you should look at your standing before God. And if you haven't entered the kingdom, by all means, Enter the kingdom. But there's more to preparing for this series. This is almost kind of homework. This is something you might want to write down. I would like you this week to review these three questions kind of daily. Maybe write them down. And if you're me, you're going to put them on a refrigerator because I spend a lot of time standing in front of the refrigerator. You'll need to put it inside because I'm standing there with the door open. You know how that works, right? But put them somewhere that, that they'll come to your mind from time to time. Question number one. Why can't I find lasting happiness? And if you feel like I've already found it, then good. I don't want to see you buying a truck again, or I don't want to see you buying a gun again, or I don't want to see you buying more fabric again. Uh, Okay, it's okay to buy those things. But go ahead and take your pulse and say, am I buying those things because I think they're going to buy me happiness? Why can't I find lasting happiness? Because I'm in the kingdom. I hope you are. I took care of step one, but still. And ask yourself that question. Meditate on it. The second question, why can't I be the person I should be? Maybe you think you are. Okay, check with your spouse. Number three, why can't I live above the world? Why do I find myself returning, as scripture says, as a dog to its own vomit? Why? What's going on there? And, and then talk to Jesus about that and say, Jesus, answer these questions for me through your word. Because I think he does in the Sermon on the Mount. The third thing I would ask you to do to prepare your heart for Jesus' teaching in this series is to come expecting God to speak to you. You know, generally, people find exactly what they're looking for. And if I come to church to get my card punched, (laughs) that's what I'll get. If I come to church and say, God, speak to me, that's what I want. That's what I get. So even on your way to church, turn off the radio, turn off whatever's in your car and say, God, speak to me this morning because I want some answers to those questions. There's a scene in the movie, The Green Mile. I would imagine a number of you have seen that movie. John Coffey says these words. You see this floating around on social media. He says, I'm tired, boss. Mostly I'm tired of people being ugly to each other. I'm tired of all the pain I feel here in the world every day. Do you ever feel that way? (laughs) I want to pray that as we look at the Sermon on the Mount, that the soul questions that evoke such an emotion as John Coffey had, that those questions would be answered for your soul. So if you're comfortable doing so, I'd like to ask you to stand, and I will pray to that end. Would you please stand? Let's bow our hearts together. Father in heaven, we are so glad that we can be real honest with you. We're so glad that when we come to you and say, why can't I find lasting happiness? Why can't I be the person I should be? Why can't I live above the world? You don't look at us and say, why? I told you before. If you don't got it now, just get out of my hair. Rather, you say, I'm so glad you're asking. Let me help you understand this. And we really shouldn't uh, kick ourselves or criticize ourselves for not understanding this. Because it is deep, deep understanding that you are unfolding in the Sermon on the Mount that requires us to understand we are looking at life backwards. And you desire to turn us around. That you resist the triviality of teaching of this world and offer us a deeper relationship with you, a deeper meaning to life, a deeper reason to live. And so, prepare our hearts. If there are some this morning that just understanding the gospel, that Christ died in their place, if they've just entered the kingdom, We praise you for that. Prepare their hearts for your teaching. May we take these questions home for us and and mull through them. And God, I'm not going to preach three sermons, one on each of these questions. I'm going to preach through what you say, Jesus. In the Sermon on the Mount, I trust your words to bring illumination to these questions and many others as we look at your words. Make our hearts ready and help us to expect you to speak to us. This is a prayer of our heart, and we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.